This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, February 25th, 2022. This is your public radio station, KUAF. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis sits down with Austin Cash to talk about the guitarist's new record. And just ahead, Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics will join us from his Fort Smith office to help us review the week. The Arkansas Department of Health is adding another 49 COVID-19 deaths to the state's total. Yesterday's report also shows continued declines in active cases and hospitalizations throughout the state. There were 571 new cases in the Thursday report. Advocacy groups say they are appealing a judge's ruling that would allow Arkansas's newly redrawn district map for the House of Representatives to stand. The Arkansas State Conference of the NAACP and the Arkansas Public Policy Panel sued over the new map, which they say seeks to dilute the power of black voters. Federal Judge Lee Radofsky dismissed the lawsuit, and the U.S. Department of Justice chose not to intervene. ACLU of Arkansas Legal Director Gary Sullivan says that's an unprecedented move. That does not typically happen. Um, In fact, in over 50 years that the Voting Rights Act has been in place, no federal court has ever made such a ruling. This is one of a kind. It's unprecedented. And uh, it does not follow Supreme Court precedent on on this issue. Sullivan says the Voting Rights Act of 1965 allows for individuals and groups to sue over legislative district maps they think are unfair. He says the judge's ruling essentially says the opposite, which could have far-reaching consequences for voting rights in the United States. And then legislatures or boards of apportionment, whoever draws maps in states, would be able to draw basically any kind of map they wanted to effectively keep black voters from electing candidates of their choice. Then black voters who realize what's going on are discouraged from even registering to vote, or if they are registered, it discourages them from voting because they feel like their votes don't count. Sullivan says it could be up to a year before a federal appeals court hears arguments in the case. And the Arkansas Razorback Women's Basketball team now 6-9 and nine in the SEC after a one-point loss to Georgia last night in Bud Walton Arena. Arkansas will end the regular season Sunday afternoon at Mississippi State. This is Ozarks at Large with me on the phone from his office in Fort Smith is Michael Tilley with Talk Business and Politics. Michael, you know my feelings about summer versus winter. I'm willing to bet you're kind of on my side this Friday. Yeah, this is a little too much. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I could use a little... I could use a little beach weather. Now I'm tired of this. Let's bring on the spring. and let's, we, This has been fun, you know, <laughs> Ha ha, good, good, good times, but let's go. Okay. Well, before the winter weather arrived, uh, there was a groundbreaking for an expansion at Mercy Fort Smith. We've talked about this before, but now it's, you know, ground is broken. We're closer to reality. Yep, here we go. It was, it was pretty frigid uh, Tuesday morning when they, when they officially broke ground because that front was coming in. But, yeah, $162.5 million expansion, pretty much new emergency room, new intensive care um, area that'll be close to 168 folks, we've been told. 
um, that will be hired over a two to three year period once this project is completed, which will be late 2024. Um, uh, here in Mercy Fort Smith, um, obviously a, a huge expansion, um, a huge improvement uh, to medical care. Um, they estimate it'll uh, give them the ability in their emergency room to care for about 25,000 more patients a year. Uh, it'll also set aside room for uh, what they call special considerations for infectious disease. I think hospitals around the country have learned what they need to do with COVID outbreaks, viral outbreaks, how to separate those folks. And it also have, will have space for um, in the ER for behavioral health patients, um, essentially, you know, for mental health care type of thing to keep those folks safe, uh, separate because unfortunately, you know, sometimes those individuals uh, can be a danger to themselves and the folks around them. So, you know, special situations, um, special uh, rooms are required. One of the things that though that I talked, you know, hospitals around the country, clinics, were having a hard time with staffing <clears throat> even before COVID. Now it's, you know, it's just ratcheted up. Um, I think the between the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics and American Hospital Association has reported that nursing jobs, the vacancies in nursing jobs rose 30% uh, between 2019 and 2020. That's that's a huge increase in vacancy. So I talked to Ron Gehrig. He's president of Mercy Fort Smith and asked him, and he acknowledged it's going to be a challenge. Um, he said they're already talking to local nursing schools about opening up more slots, uh, specialty schools to open up more slots. He said, for example, they need more respiratory therapists. They've even talked about alternative types of work schedules. He said, you know, some people have either retired or you know, hit retirement age and got out of the industry or just quit because of the pressure. He said, they're thinking about ways to bring them in. Maybe somebody just wants to work four to six hours a day for a few days a week, or, you know, maybe just work a couple of weekends a month, you know, just flexible work schedules. Um, you know, and his, I, I thought it was interesting. His quote was, as you know, the workforce is rapidly evolving and we're in the middle of all of that ourselves. And so um, it, it'll be interesting. And, and I think it's a story we're going to follow more than just the construction is going to be their efforts to staff up what is a significant uh, expansion. And it is a significant expansion. When when do they expect it to be done? Yeah, late 2024. Um, it was going to be a little bit earlier, but I, I think they're giving themselves a little leeway because um, of supply chain issues. You know, a lot of products, uh, not only the building materials, but the equipment for the hospital. I think um, there is some concern or, or just a reality that, you know, those things that may have taken six months to order and get here may now be nine months or longer. So I, I think they, they're building themselves in a little um, flexibility, but they're telling everyone it's late 2024. It is 2022 right now, an election year, and it really feels like an election year this week. You've got the second week of the special session, or not special session, but a fiscal session of the Arkansas legislature. State Capitol has candidates that will be on the ballot in the primaries in May and general election in November filing. And we're talking about a possible or a, a tax election in Fort Smith now. Yep. The uh, the Fort Smith board on Tuesday night um, was approved two ordinances. Now, this is the tax vote 
that they originally had set that it was going to be apart from the May primary. And then there was a lot of pushback from it, uh, including we had talked business, wrote an editorial that said that this was um, not only do we think they violated the Freedom of Information Act in in setting the tax, but they received no citizen input on on a tax that going to generate several hundred million dollars over a 10-year period, there was, there was no, I don't want to say there was almost no, there was no citizen input. So to the board's credit, they stepped back, had a series of um, study sessions and public hearings and talked about the tax. And what they came up with was what I think, and kudos to the board for taking the initiative to say, okay, you're right, we're wrong. We shouldn't have, we, sh- we should have done this a little better. So we are. So they stepped back and what they approved was this a quarter cent sales tax uh, that will be on the books for eight years and a uh, instead of ten years uh, and the and the three quarters of a cent sales tax that will also be on the book for eight years instead of ten years. The quarter cent sales tax will support the fire department and city parks. Uh, the other tax, three quarter cent tax, will most of that eighty three percent will go to the federal consent decree work. And just a little under 17% will go to support city's police department. Um, and in addition to that, um, the, the board has the board hasn't approved this yet, but they will tie uh, if the tax passes, they will tie sewer rates. That that if that there's a sewer rate increase of any more than three and a half percent, sales tax would stop. So it's kind of a trigger that that gives the citizens some. Um, uh, relief that, you know, if, if we vote for this tax, our, our city and, our, excuse me, our water and sewer rates, would, would, and they've gone up a little over 160% in the last three to five years, that that will stop if we pass a sales tax to support the consent decree work. So kudos to them for doing that. They also created a um, sales tax advisory committee, um, which if that is structured right and they get the right people on it, Kyle, I think it could provide practical feedback to the board about the money that's collected, how it's being spent, that kind of thing from a public perception point of view. If it's not structured well and you get some folks who just want to raise hell instead of provide good public feedback, then I don't know what good it will be, but it was an interesting uh, concession to create that that committee. So we'll have a vote uh, on, on the primary on May 24th, the special election, and We'll see how it goes. These taxes in the past have been um, supported, which in this very political conservative part of the world have have always been supported by voters. So we'll see what what their take is on it this time. All right. And finally, let's talk about some home sales numbers for 2021 in the Fort Smith Metro. They were better than 2020. And to put that in perspective, 2020 itself set a record. Yeah, it was a record year, and again, this is—I just continue to be wrong on these things. I had a feeling that the numbers would be a little bit better. I just had no idea they'd be this much better. So there were 4,400 homes sold in the Fort Smith Metro. That's several counties in the region, and some areas in eastern Oklahoma. That was up almost 11 percent, Kyle, compared to 2020. And as you said, 2020 was a record year. Um, the value of those homes sold was 853.4 million. That was up 31%. I think the more interesting thing, interesting depending depending on whether you're a buyer or a seller, but 
um, the highest average home price um, uh, in 2020, uh, excuse me, the, the, you know, the average home price in both Sebastian and Crawford County, the two largest counties in the metro area, topped 200000 for the first time since the numbers have been being kept. So uh, that was interesting. The, highest, the, the average home price was a little over 203000 in Sebastian County. Also, the days on market, the homes are selling much quicker. Days on market fell from 98 in 2020 um, to 69 in 2021. That's a, that's a significant difference um, in terms of pushing the home. So very healthy market. I am not at all going to try to figure out what it does in 2022. We're going to have interest rates increases. Mortgage rates are already ticking up. Um, and if anything, those that may slow it down. And the other thing that may slow down the market, not only in Fort Smith, but around the country is just the supply of homes. The, the demand continues to outpace the supply. So if you don't have enough homes to sell, uh, they don't get sold. And we know we can take that to the bank. Um, and I want to go back to that $200,000 figure. So that was the, for the first time, the average home price was over 200000 Did I, right? Right. Wow. Yeah, so the average home price in 20, um, uh, yeah, for the for the Fort Smith Metro um, was over 200000 excuse me, let me back up. The average price in the Fort Smith Metro was 193000 almost 194000 That was up a little over 18%. But in Sebastian and Crawford County, again, the two largest in the metro area, the average price was over two hundred thousand for the first time. Um, you know, and it, was, and it was quite a big jump. For example, uh, like I said, in Sebastian County, it was two hundred, a little over two hundred three thousand last in twenty twenty one. In twenty twenty, it was about one hundred seventy two thousand. So, not just a little bit of a jump, but a pretty significant increase in that average. Wow! All right. Uh, you can read about all of this and much more at talkbusiness.net. Michael, stay warm. You know, we're going to be in the 60s, especially you there in the Arkansas River Valley, I think lower 60s by Tuesday. Bring it on. <laughs> Michael, always great to talk to you. Talk to you next week. All right. Thank you, sir. Hey, teachers. If you're an avid NPR listener, you might even tune in to some NPR podcast. But did you know you could have your students be part of an NPR podcast, too, with the NPR Podcast Challenge. It's for grades 5 through 12, and deadline is March 21st. Go to studentpodcastchallenge.npr.org for rules and information. The 2022 James Beard nominations are out, and Northwest Arkansas is well represented. The Preacher's Son in Bentonville is a national semifinalist in the Outstanding Hospitality category, along with 19 other restaurants from across the country. Two of the 20 nominees for Best Chef in the South are from Northwest Arkansas, Rafael Rios of Yeos and Matthew McClure of The Hive. Winners will be celebrated at the James Beard Restaurant and Chef Award Ceremony Monday, June 13th, taking place at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. And Fayetteville Film Fest Arkansas Filmmaker Showcase, scheduled for today at Walton Arts Center, has been rescheduled because of the inclement weather. The new date for the event is Friday, April 22nd, beginning at 7 p.m. that night. Tickets for the original performance will be honored at that April date. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation.
The University of Arkansas Department of Political Science offers political science and public administration and nonprofit studies graduate programs. Both programs train the next generation of local, state, national, and global leaders in the public, nonprofit, and private sectors. Applications for fall 2022 and graduate assistantships are available for qualified applicants. plsc.uark.edu for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. A fungal infection that's impaired and killed millions of hibernating bats in the United States and Canada is considered one of the worst wildlife disease outbreaks in North American history. Called White Nose Syndrome, the pathogen was first detected in upstate New York in 2006 and has spread through bat colonies in over three dozen states, including Arkansas. Federal and state laboratory and field research to stop the epidemic was forced to halt two years ago because of COVID-19. But as Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, federal and state scientists are gearing back up to continue that work. I'm Jonathan Reichard. I'm a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service based in Hadley, Massachusetts, and I'm the National Assistant Coordinator for White Nose Syndrome. The White Nose Syndrome Response Team collaborates with 138 federal and state agencies, universities, and non-governmental organizations, including several in Arkansas. White Nose Syndrome is a fungal disease that affects hibernating bats, a variety of species of them. It's caused by the fungus Pseudogymnoascus destructans, which we call PD for short. Um, PD causes skin infections while the bats are in states of torpor during winter. Uh, this is part of their, their regular hibernation routine. It's a fungus that grows best in cold conditions like those of the caves and mines where bats hibernate. And it takes advantage of those, uh, those conditions and the relative dormant state of the bats during that time period to invade the host. Um, in multiple species, it, it causes infections that, that lead to mortality. White-nose syndrome is spread bat to bat, but humans can introduce the fungus into cave ecosystems through contaminated clothing, boots, and climbing gear. The disease appears to have originated in Europe and China, where bats have long adapted to it. The irritating white fungus, Pseudogymnoascus destructans, grows on the wings and snouts of bats, hence the name white-nose syndrome rousing the warm-blooded creatures from winter hibernation, leading them to perish from starvation and cold. The disease has been confirmed in 37 states uh, and seven provinces across North America, uh, and the pathogen is in at least two additional states in one province. Um, and the, the difference there is that when we say just the pathogen is present, we just haven't, haven't seen the disease manifest in those populations. Twelve species of bats have been confirmed with white-nose syndrome in North America, he says. And the degree of impacts, the severity varies between the species. Uh, some species, like little brown bat and northern long-eared bat, we've seen very severe declines that are upwards of 90 to almost 100 percent in some locations um, after white-nose syndrome arrives uh, in those winter colonies. Whereas other species, we've seen the characteristic infections of white-nose syndrome, but have not documented any, any colony-level mortality events uh, from the disease. Back in 2011, experts estimated as many as 7 million bats had died due to white-nose syndrome. New mortality counts are pending. We actually had um, begun working with the bat 
regional bat working groups. It's a collection of state biologists and researchers and consultants to revise that number. Um, we had meetings on that in early 2020 uh, with the hopes that we were going to have a, a new estimate of total mortality, but um, then everything shut down and we stopped having those meetings and opportunities to revise that number. So uh, hopefully once we start having these in-person conversations again, where we can really hash out those, those estimates, then we'll get a revision. Before the COVID-19 human pandemic, federal and state wildlife biologists would routinely survey bat hibernacula, which includes sinkholes, caves, and mines, conducting annual bat counts and checking for disease outbreaks and go in there in late winter, uh, carefully walk through the area, surveying every nook and cranny of the the walls and and count the bats, Um, taking photographs along the way. This is also a really good time to look for evidence of white-nose syndrome because that's when, when the fungus might be visible if it turns out to be a site that has endangered species in it or, or has a large bat colony in it, then it might become something that's of really great importance for a, an annual survey or a biannual survey um, where contractors may come in. Wildlife biologists also survey migratory bats and summer roosting bats. In Arkansas, white-nose syndrome poses a great risk to threatened and endangered bats. Um, The Ozark big-eared bat has been found with PD on it, but has not been shown to get the characteristic infections of white-nose syndrome. So this is one of those species that is exposed to the pathogen, but has some qualities that prevent it from getting sick from that pathogen. Um, Other endangered species in in Arkansas and Missouri do get white-nose syndrome, true disease from exposure to the pathogen. Um, Indiana bats in particular get disease and have shown sort of a moderate uh, population level impact, uh, whereas northern long-eared bat and little brown bat uh, get disease and have shown really severe impacts from, from the infections, high levels of mortality in their colonies. Often maligned and caricatured as dangerous, bats are remarkable creatures that provide critical ecological services. Bats will consume a large variety of insects, but many of those are agricultural pests. Some of them could be um, human disease vectors, uh, and they, they really help to control those insect populations each night. Um, around the world, bats are also pollinators, they're seed dispersers, uh, so they play important roles in other countries. Uh, but in North America, it's primarily from their really important role consuming insects, primarily night-flying insects. Protecting bats from this deadly fungus remains mission-critical, Reichert says. We're confident that our efforts to control the human-mediated spread of PD have been successful. We've used decontamination of of caving gear, um, cleaning of shoes at at popular tourist attractions like Mammoth Cave. Uh, We're confident that those have played a role in minimizing the risk of people transporting PD to places where PD isn't already present. But bat-to-bat transmission of the fungus remains epidemic. And so it's now almost entirely across the continent, um, the the lower 48 states at least. Um, That's why we've been developing these other uh, treatment options to really combat the, the disease. And those 
Those span a variety of tools from treatments that focus on the hosts, on the bats themselves, to treatments that, that focus on the caves and mines. So when bats return there in the fall, they, they come back to a place that's relatively clean of PD and they don't get reinfected at the start of the next winter. There's testing of certain wavelengths of UV light that can cleanse the area of PD. Antifungal and probiotic spray treatments are also under development. And we've even uh, seen testing of a vaccine in bat populations. So this vaccine specific to white nose syndrome um, elevates bats' chance of surviving the infection. Coronavirus in people cause common colds, but can also infect animals, including bats. A novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19 in humans, appears to have originated in Wuhan, China, possibly in a wildlife meat market. So, so the scientific community still does not has not identified the specific host species from which SARS-CoV-2 originated. Um, what we do know is that COVID is, is a human disease and human-human transmission has led to the current pandemic. Uh, the pathogen SARS-CoV-2 has not been isolated in any bat species in North America or elsewhere. Reichert's team's also monitoring just how white-nose syndrome might be changing as the disease spreads across the U.S. Uh, we're really curious and, and highly attentive to how white-nose syndrome is going to impact these species um, as, as it spreads into this, through this frontier zone of, of the disease. A map published by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service shows a dense cluster of white-nose syndrome occurrence on bat habitat across northwest and northern Arkansas, a karst-rich ecosystem. Blake Sassy, non-game mammal coordinator for the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, monitors wild bat populations. Due to the pandemic, his team had to cease that work. Surveillance, however, has started up again this winter. We still are seeing uh, active infections of white-nose syndrome in bats in some of our caves. Um, it's a little bit too early uh, in our monitoring season to say exactly how it's all going to turn out. Um, we're, we are uh, quite curious as to how things are going since we weren't able to do surveys last year. And even our surveys in 2020 and 2021 were kind of a, of a limited nature. Um, so this will be the first year since 2019 that we've really been able to go back to um, all of our uh, normally monitored caves to see what's going on. Since the disease was first documented in 2006, widespread cave closures have occurred on federal and state lands in eastern and midwestern states where the disease has been most prevalent and is now spreading westward. For Ozarks at Large... I'm Jacqueline Froelich. This week on Ozarks at Large, we've had some of our programs altered and disrupted to bring you live coverage of events and press conferences related to the Russian invasion into Ukraine. Some of our stories and interviews weren't heard during our noontime broadcast, so some of those features will be included on weekend Ozarks at Large Sunday morning at 9, including a new edition of Sound Perimeter from Leah Uribe, our conversation with singer-songwriter John McCutcheon, and our conversation with NPR's Bob Boylan about the 2022 NPR Tiny Desk Contest. That and more Sunday morning at 9 on Weekend Ozarks at Large and KUAF. And you can listen to KUAF wherever you are by using the free KUAF app, and we will continue to bring you live news coverage from NPR as warranted throughout the weekend. 
Hi, my name is Paul, your host for the Generic Blues Show, which airs every Friday night at 9 o'clock. Join me this Friday. I brought in Randy Stratton and Connell Miller as we preview the CD, Leave On and the Hawks, live at the Fond du Lac Club, 1965 in Tulsa. Also, a few other tunes of the Hawks with Ronnie Hawkins, Bob Dylan, and later as the band. That's the Generic Blue Show every Friday night at 9 o'clock. We'll see you then. This is Ozarks at Large. Next week, the latest album on Fayetteville's own Garhole Records will be released. Pearl's Books in Fayetteville will host a release party for Palisades. It's the latest by Fayetteville ambient Americana artist Austin Cash. In advance of that release party, Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis invited Austin to his home studio in South Fayetteville to talk about the album and the release. In turn, Austin performed some even newer music that he's been working on since finishing the Palisades EP. My name is Austin Cash. This is Dogwood Variations.
first of all, how would you describe your sound? <laughs> I make Americana records. That's yeah. The way I see it. Yeah. You know. What's kind of influenced you stylistically? Stylistically, different things. I mean, there's stuff in music and stuff in film or literature and painting. I think David Lynch is probably a bigger influence on what I do than anything else. Yeah, how so? Um, focusing more on mood than composition or something. It's the same thing with, like, minimalist artists or abex painters, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then whatever follows from setting that mood. Before we started recording, you said the music you're playing right now was a little bit different from what you've released. How would you classify that? Well, I'm, I've been writing a fingerstyle acoustic guitar pieces. And I think it's kind of the same thing in a way. I think both of those things sound like I made them. But the other ones are more um, moodier, kind of long, Ouroboros, (laughs) (laughs) like electronic, kind of country-inflected compositions. And these are more... um, I think these pieces kind of get you to, to the same headspace... It's more of a story than like a scene. Yeah. You know, more, you know, you're like uh, watching something unfold instead of walking into a room. How do you piece a story like that together? I mean, like, your last album, All Over Alabama, had two 20 plus minute tracks, and it seems like that'd be a lot to kind of put down. I mean, is it challenging to write something, write a story that long? That whole album, I think, was written recorded and mixed in the space of 10 hours. Really? Yeah, because it's not... I thought about it for like three years. It was on my mind for a long time because I I knew what I wanted to evoke with it before I knew how it was going to work. So then I thought about it for a long time, and when I finally figured out how to put that music together, it kind of came into focus. It was really easy. Yeah. So your newest album that's coming out shortly, Palisades. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how that project came about. That was a um, soundtrack for um, a Mike Venata documentary about a wilderness reserve in Wyoming. And he liked all over Alabama, and he wanted to use that music. And then he just said, can you write some more? And that was with you know, a week's notice or something. <laughs> so then I went down to Little Rock so I got a quiet place to record in uh, my buddy Connor Breen's apartment and I recorded it all in you know, four tracks in three days or whatever. Wrote and recorded it. <laughs> How did you approach composing that though? I mean, with only a week's notice. I mean, if your last one took oh, three years to think about. Well, because it was the same it's kind of the same principle applied to those tracks. Yeah. It was just the same the tricks I learned from making all over Alabama kind of yeah. went right over to those pieces really easily. Yeah. Just thinking about it thematically or... Thematically, I mean, I knew what he wanted it to sound like. I just knew how to write those pieces and assemble them. They're very textured pieces from what I've listened to. How how did you kind of build that feeling? I mean, what kind of led you down that path? Oh, for those particular ones or just in general? Well, both, really. Just in general, but also for this record. Just mood. I think some people pick up on this and some don't, but really the thing that I think people are talking about is slide guitar, which it just... That slide guitar thing, where it, the way I play it, it never really goes 
into tune. It never hits the note it's supposed to exactly. And it's got the kind of loping thing. And I think that actually is what makes it all sound like that. <laughs> I think it's just a slide guitar. Is there something special about creating an ambience, creating a soundscape with primarily acoustic instruments versus, you know, throwing in electronics and all of that? Yeah, I think it's way easier. I just made a whole, I have a whole album I haven't put out yet that I made at the end of last year. It's like 50-50 DAW stuff and synthesizers and acoustic instruments. And that's kind of harder because you have more um, possibilities. Yeah. So like with Palisades, I just had what was in my buddy's apartment, which was <laughs> an electric and acoustic guitar and a glockenspiel and his accordion. <laughs> and so that's what we used. And so that is kind of easier when you know what the decisions are made for you. Right. Inspiration by limitation, so to speak. Sure, yeah. Palisades, you mentioned it was composed as a soundtrack to this documentary, but do you feel like it offers something standing alone by itself without being the soundtrack to that film? Yeah, because it's the same thing as all over Alabama as far as the way it was put together, but I think it's a more successful take on that idea. Mm To me, all over Alabama, I'm not being very good at promoting my own music right now, but I think it's A-plus idea and like a like a C on execution. It sounds like somebody's first record to me. And then Palisades is pretty much coming from the same place, but I think it has a lot more room to breathe. Yeah. I prefer those compositions. Okay. So you're releasing Palisades toward the end of February. You have a release party scheduled for... Oh, it's a party, not a concert. <laughs> well, that's why I said party. It was very specific about the wording. You've got it scheduled for the early March. Uh, tell us what you have planned. That's on the 3rd at Pearl's Books and uh, Nathan Riggs, the free improvisation noise player, and uh, Dylan Earl are going to play. Okay. And then I'm going to play a bunch of sensitive acoustic guitar music. (laughs) Sounds like a great night. I think so. It really does. What are the plans for releasing this? Where can people find it, buy it, listen to it, what have you? Um... Probably Block Street Records, I'm guessing. I haven't really talked about that with, <laughs> <laughs> with the label. With the um, uh, Garhol right. corporate staff. <laughs> and, uh, I hear it's a huge ladder to go up. It's a big ladder. <laughs> yeah, I have to wait three days to run anything up that ladder. <laughs> but Bandcamp, you know, usual yeah. channels. It's on YouTube and all your nefarious streaming services. Right. What else have you got coming up that you're looking forward to musically? Well, I got I got a new record I haven't put out that I'm really excited about uh, sharing. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. It's kind of like a radio play. Yeah. And I'm going to record all this acoustic guitar music probably this summer, so I might have two albums out this year. Okay. That would be cool. Well, whenever you get uh, at least one of those done, come back and we'll talk about it. Yeah.
That was Austin Cash performing for Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis in Timothy's home studio located in South Fayetteville. The release show for Austin's EP Palisades will be March 3rd at Pearl's Books in downtown Fayetteville. No snow in the March 3rd forecast. Seating is limited and reserved tickets are on sale through Eventbrite. You can find out more about the event on Facebook and you can find Austin's music at austincash.bandcamp.com. In the background is saxophonist Clark Gibson, and I'm Robert Ginsberg, your host for Shades of Jazz. We'll hear more from Clark Gibson in anticipation of his concert at Walton Arts Center, as well as music from Sean Jones, Tommy Flanagan, Joe Locke, and much more. Shades of Jazz every Friday and Saturday, right here on KUAF. This is Ozarks at Large. With me via Zoom is Courtney Lanning. Courtney, how are you? Kyle, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Very good. Last week, I always take a, a few notes after we discuss a movie each week here. And the only note I have from last week is that you wanted to review No Exit. And then I wrote this <laughs> cryptic note next to it. Sounds like something I won't like no matter what. And I don't remember why I wrote that. Huh. So. I, I'm guessing it's because it's kind of a horrorish title and you and I don't like scary movies. No. And I'm, and maybe No Exit is claustrophobic, enough claustrophobic sounding to me that that's what I meant by my note. Oh, it is definitely a very enclosed setting. That's for sure. All right. Well, give me the basic plot here. So the premise of No Exit is that a uh, a young lady who is suffering from addiction is in rehab for her sixth or seventh time. Okay. Uh, to put it in her words, she's there because it's rehab or jail. And she, she receives a phone call that her mother is in the hospital uh, with a brain aneurysm. So she tries to leave. They won't let her. So she breaks out to go see her mother. And on the way to see her mother, she steals a car and she races out of the parking lot. And uh, she was in Sacramento. Her mother is hospitalized in Salt Lake City. And somewhere between there, she goes into the mountains. Uh, I'm assuming Sierra, Nevada, mountains maybe. Um, uh, she gets caught in a blizzard and it shuts down the whole road. So a cop tells her that she can turn around, but she can pull off at this welcome center he's opened. She goes to the Welcome Center. There's a cast of about four or five other people there at the center already, all strangers. And she discovers while outside looking for cell service that there is a little girl bound and kidnapped in the back of a van outside screaming for help. So then the movie becomes this intense uh, thriller where she has to figure out who in the Welcome Center is the kidnapper and how she can try to get help because they are stranded in a blizzard. She knows one of the four people trapped with her or the kidnapper. And uh, she's got to figure out how to rescue this little girl and, of course, survive to go see her mother. Well, okay. This sounds thrilling and intriguing from, from the basic plot description Does it and intense. Does it hold up? Oh, it is very, very intense. Um, but it's, it's great as well. I went into the movie not expecting much, and I was wowed because this whole movie, I was on the edge of my seat, white-knuckle intensity, um, and there's so many great twists. When you think she has to face this one thing, she has to face another. 
And then there's a twist toward the end. And it's, they're not like Shyamalan twists. Right. These are actually good. No, these, they don't discover they're secretly living in a state park the whole time. It's, <laughs> it is really good writing and it's very, very intense. Okay. All right. Who's in this? So while everybody gives a great performance, Dennis Haysbert really steals the show. He plays a, a retired Marine uh, on his way to Nevada to engage in some vacation gambling. So Dennis Haysbert, that's a familiar name. Why do, why do I know that name? So, of course, he, he has been in movies. Um, he played God in the recent TV series Lucifer. And uh, he's also the, the spokesman for Allstate Insurance. Gotcha. Way back when he was uh, the president on the television show 24. Right. He's, he's very well known for his extremely deep voice. Exactly. It sounds um, like it could be dark. Yeah. And I mean that in two ways here. Because, yes, the source material is dark. Um, but also, you know, my one complaint with this movie is like, the first half hour isn't well lit. And that seems like a small complaint. You never hear people come out of a movie and go, oh, I didn't like the lighting. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not something you complain about often, except for I really couldn't see well for the first half hour. I had to turn up the brightness on my television to where it was almost a little gray just to see what was happening. But fortunately, that corrects itself about 30 minutes in. Okay. Uh, is this streaming? Yes, this will be releasing today on Hulu. Okay, no exit. What else is available to us either at home or in the theaters this week? So coming, I believe, to theaters this week is a movie called Studio 666, uh, which is about the Foo Fighters, which is a band, of course, that a lot of people are familiar with. And they are trying to record a new album while battling supernatural forces. You know, this is this is good. It's been a long time since we've had a goofy musical band movie. I'm thinking like Help way back when. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. I like Dave Grohl so, a lot. Right. And it's, you know, you're right. It's been a while since we've had one of these. Um, and then I think there's also a new Medea film coming out this week for fans of Tyler Perry. And so what do you hope we talk about next week? Next week is one that I'm sure a lot of people have been looking forward to for years now. Next week, I will bring you a review of The Batman. And who is the Cape Crusader this time around? It's not Ben Affleck anymore. It's not you, Michael Keaton. You're right. It's not Christian Not Vail. Michael Keaton. Not, thankfully, George Clooney. <laughs> I think George Clooney would agree with you there. Um, <laughs> isn't it someone who... who, who uh, Robert Pattinson. Who was in the Twilight movies. That Yeah, I'm sure that's what he would... People prefer not remember him as. But uh, he was also recently in um, Tenet, which was Christopher Nolan's. That's right. I have one last question before we go. With new televisions, how do you turn up the brightness? When I was growing up, Courtney, there was a knob, and it was you could turn it up or turn it down. If I had to turn up the brightness on my flat screen right now, I wouldn't know where to begin. So let me tell you a very short story about how I have my television, and surprisingly, it still works. When I moved out of my house, uh, my parents' house, and I moved into my first home, uh, the television set that I had in my room was too big for the room I was moving into. Mm -hmm. I literally couldn't get it in the door. 
because uh, I had one of my parents' big old TVs. So I traded TVs with my younger brother. He had uh, a younger flat screen. It's about 30 inches or so. That would fit. He thought he was getting the better deal because he was getting like a big 50-inch TV. Sure. Uh, about a month after I moved out, my old TV crapped out on him. Just stopped working. To this day, uh, I still have his old TV, and it still works fine. It's about 30 inches, like I said. And you change the brightness in the settings. Settings. Okay. All right. Well, next, if I'm watching No Exit, and it's too dark at my household, I'm calling you, and you're going to walk me through this. I will try to provide technical support <laughs> while trying not to make you feel too old about technology at the same time. I have. I appreciate that, too. Probably <laughs> appreciate the second half more than the first. Courtney Lanning's uh, full review of No Exit can be found in the Friday edition of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Courtney, thank you so much. Can't wait to talk to you about the Batman next week. Thanks for having me. It'll be good. This week, a chat among friends about the late Andre Leon Talley and his complicated relationship with fashion and Anna Winter. I hope Andre haunts her. That's what I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the ghost of Andre Leon Talley with one of them capes just running up in her room. At this night. is how I know Saeed is Southern. Saeed always likes to evoke a ghost. Listen. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders tomorrow at 10 on KUAF. This is KUAF 91.3. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Ponca. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced today's show, and Rachel Sanchez-Smith provided assistance getting us ready for broadcast. Contributors today included Timothy Dennis, Jacqueline Froelich, Michael Tilley, and Courtney Lanning. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellum. Stay warm. We'll talk again soon.